This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Flip Ford, and joining me in the virtual studio is Paul Anthony Nelson. Hey, Paul. Hi, Flick. How are you doing? I'm very well, Paul. And we've got a special guest reviewer, a fellow triple R presenter and host of Tuesday night's The Mission, Daniel James. Good evening. Hi, Daniel. Um, you were one of my the nine Triple R presenters I interviewed for a very special broadcast of Primal Screen um, back in December. I asked you about your favourite TV you, shows and, and films that got you through lockdown. You described us not as the the nine, but you um, described us as the cream of the crop. I did. Um, <laughs> so I was, was very very honoured to be part of that. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Not meant to tell everyone that. Um, but it kind of outed you as a bit of a movie buff. Um, but you're also a very talented writer. Um, your article on Collingwood President Eddie Maguire and systemic racism in sport was recently published in the Saturday paper and also featured in the 7am podcast. Um, and just last month, we did um, a week of fake fasters together with uh, Mr. Vaughan Quinn. So it's great to have you back yes. on air. <clears throat> no, absolute pleasure to be here. And it's good to be here talking about light subject matter as well. <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> So on tonight's show, we will follow the origin of the highly acclaimed Bangara Dance Theatre and the three Page Brothers at the centre of one of the most successful First Nation dance companies in the world in Neil Minchin and Mel, uh, sorry, and Wayne Blair's documentary, Firestarter, the story of Bangara. We'll also see you in the NT, more specifically Kakadu National Park and Arnhem Land for Stephen Maxwell Johnson's Visceral Western High Ground starring Simon Baker as a disillusioned officer in Arnhem Land, trying to balance duty and justice on the bloody frontier of colonial expansion. And the film also introduces newcomer Jacob Jr. Nayangul as Gachak, a young Indigenous man brought up on a mission and also the sole known survivor of a violent massacre. And joining us in the virtual studio is the director of High Ground, Stephen Maxwell-Johnson. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. So your film High Ground, it's been referred to as everything from a meat pie western to a colonial drama to a revenge thriller. Now, I know that genres can be, uh, you know, reductive, but especially um, for a film as as multi-layered and tonally complex as High Ground. Um, But if you were held at gunpoint, how would you describe it? Uh, How about an immersive northern Oh, uh, Northern, I like, I like that. that. That's why I get money. to the big bucks. <laughs> 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 it's better than bloody meat pie western. I hate yeah, that. It's gross, isn't it? 
Mm. Like kangaroo western or northern. I like those yeah. two. Yeah. yeah, I agree. There you go. There you go. No, look, very much. Um, we've actually, you know, been saying it's it's a northern. It really is just a, a, a from that place, from that time, from that world. Um, you know, we've just kind of come come at the story in the in the best ways that we collectively could. It's a very much a both ways film. Um, shot in collaboration with the the peoples of Arnhem Land, the Yungu and the the Binning people, so you know it's very much of its own brand from that part of the world. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I love that because there was obviously elements of Western filmmaking that came through, but when it so it came across as a decolonizing decolonizing of that space, so I was kind of really found it difficult to put it to words and almost didn't want to really categorize it but um yeah i love that idea of a northern i um good. i saw a lot of the uh, the searches in it Stephen. Mm. no good good daniel good chris yeah. is a big fan of the searches as was i and uh, what an amazing film to to sort of be in the same kind of uh, discussion as the searches so you've got to be happy with that <laughs> yeah um, minus but, minus the abject racism yeah exactly <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, it's one of the terrific films and you've got to think about when that film was made and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, incredible. Sure. Mm. Mm. Now, I understand this film has been in the making for 20 years. Um, when was that first seed planted and how did it evolve over that period? Well, look, um, I grew up there and I grew up, I was very, very fortunate to have grown up in some incredible places in the world, started off in the Bahama Islands and then we went over to Africa and from there we came out to Australia and the Northern Territory. So most of my life, my whole life was really my my real life world was living with Indigenous people and growing up in some 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 wild places. And... Um, you know, I heard the stories I was hearing as a young kid were, were tribal stories. There were stories about colonisation, you know, stories about history, about whitefellas coming in with guns. I mean, that was happening in Africa. And then obviously when I came out to Australia, I started to hear a lot about uh, the true history of this country from countrymen. And uh, it just didn't gel with what I was hearing at school my whole life. So, so um, I actually found myself at odds with... Uh, my own education system in that way. And really the seed was planted when I was quite young because I was determined to uh, not only seek the truth for myself but to to kind of put it out there. And I was always interested in films and that was a, a medium I always saw as a very powerful way to communicate things from when I was a little boy in Africa. And, um, yeah, so the seed started early. But um, my uh, my work with the Yothi Indy, I did all the Yothi Indy clips and um, did a lot of, lot of work up there on filming ceremonies and all sorts of documentaries and what have you through Arnhem Land. And um, I just kept on finding out more and more and more about uh, things that had taken place through that country. And, um, you know, it's nothing sure of um, horror. And, um, you know, I myself, Mundawoy, family, we just started talking about this idea of, of collecting these stories and, and putting them on the big screen. Those, um, for those who haven't seen it, those Yothi Yindi clips still stand up beautifully today. Um, really, really vibrant, really full of energy, really captured the time but also timeless at the same time. Um, one of the things that I loved about the film, Stephen, was the, the use of uh, language, of course, Mm -hmm. And it made me reflect on 
well, you couldn't actually make a movie like that in a place like Victoria because so much language has been decimated over, over time. And the same thing is gradually and slowly happening in Arnhem Land and in parts of the Northern Territory. What were some of the challenges around getting that language and using that language and making it meaningful for the cast but also for the audience? Yeah, well, as you say, Daniel, um, uh, language is culture and, and language is rapidly disappearing uh, for many reasons. Um, you know, the the, the um, ceremonies, uh, uh, ceremonial activities reducing. I mean, it's, it's expensive to practice ceremony to get people together. People are so dispersed now. Um, you know, there's the, the scourge of alcoholism and social issues, all, all sorts of stuff going out in the, on a, out in the bush. It's um, uh, really, it's a tragedy. It's really, really sad. It's gen- genocide still happening basically. But language is, is um, disappearing and with, with some of the, the very old people who are passing away, a tongue goes with them, uh, a knowledge goes with them. It's um, very, very sad. So we were determined to set this story back in time and it was a time when uh, families and clans, tribes would get together and do ceremony and would be able to speak several languages and cross-communicate. So we wanted to try and relive that time. Um, so in the film, several languages are spoken and they're conversing with each other and understanding each other. But to actually pull that off on the day was very hard because the actors mm. didn't actually speak uh, each other's language. So there were challenges, but, you know, with the elders standing right there and, and Woody and Marika kind of guiding the whole process culturally, uh, we were able to to do it. And um, it was a, a challenge for some of the young actors too to sort of wrap their heads around some of the, the dialogue and the translations and things. But um, it was, it was yeah, a wonderful thing to be a part of actually. Actually, just um, touching upon that, the one of the youngest, um, one of the, um, well, the, the character who stood out the most to me is the main character, Gutchuk, um, played by Jacob Jr. Gutchuk, um, sorry. Daniel Gutchuk, tra- yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Daniel tells me off that's for right. my horrible that's okay. <laughs> mispronunciation. Gutchuk, yeah. Gutchuk. Um, Jacob Jr. Nyangle? Nyangle, that's good, Nyangle. yeah. Yeah. He was exceptional. And um, mm. we spoke off air about um, uh, Galwiri, who's played by Esmeralda um, Maramawa, um, who's this incredibly powerful and resilient woman. I was really taken by her as she's just exceptional. Both these actors, I mean, the entire cast, mm. but those actors in particular are so strong on screen. Can you tell us a bit about how you found these actors and what that casting process was like? Certainly. Um, well, the casting process was extensive and took place throughout Arnhem Land. You know, we easily screen tested 1,500, 1,600, 1,700 people right across. Um, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was very thorough. Um, and you've got to remember that this this story is a real-life thing for um, Yolngu and Binning people, so they instantly identify with the story and the, and the characters within the story because it's their own family, it's themselves in a sense. So there's an instant connection to the story and to that storytelling. Um, 
So there's a, there's a truth there. There's a deep truth. It was just whether or not people were able to access it within, within their own selves to let it go and to let it out because there is shame involved and um, uh, there's all sorts of things that, that, that play out with various people and they're just not quite prepared to put themselves out there publicly um, to reveal some of those, those truths and emotions. However, obviously young Esmeralda and Jacob were completely committed to uh, telling the story with us. They're, they come from very, very powerful families and very big estates. In other words, the country that the film is made is actually where they, they were born and where they were from. It's their, their country. And I remember talking to Jacob Jr.'s granddad, the great Jacob Nyingle, 20 years ago about this film. He's a passed away but he was on a land for for people to he would have been so proud of Jay standing up and doing this so you know there I am generations later I've got his grandson and he's a lead actor in my movie it was um, amazing. an amazing story actually yeah absolutely I actually remember we interviewed uh, Warwick Thornton mm. last year and he talked a bit about mm. the way in which he it was the difficulty in in um in uh yeah in, in kind well, sorry we did a spotlight on Warwick Thornton and getting the he had the same sort of issues with 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 talking to like the question of shame came up a lot and it was really interesting mm. hearing mm. about not sort of the obvious barriers with creating films in those communities but also just that yeah it kind of speaks to what has been lost and um yeah it's really powerful um just on that um you know, there's obviously a huge amount of responsibility in telling this story and this history, um, and it's a history that has, of course, has been so often erased. And I just wonder how you went about approaching that task. You've spoken a little bit on tonight's episode, um, tonight's interview about the these consultations and collaborations, and obviously there's a lot of involvement from the community. Um, can you just elaborate? A bit on that, and particularly in relation to how you came up with the characters and the story. Yeah, look, I lost you a little bit there, but I'm assuming oh, you, you. No, that's okay. I think um, you, you're asking me about the how we made this thing and all of the consultation and stuff. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, um, I have to say, I think for me, I'm very, very lucky to have spent a very, very significant part of my life in and around Arnhem Land. And through that comes trust, uh, comes learning, comes understanding, comes a, a kind of a, a, a Mandawa and I, Mandawa was a great believer in uh, a bridge between two cultures, both ways, education, um, a two-way conversation. And that's how I've lived my life there. I've, I've never kind of seen, seen the world as black and white. I've always seen as as, as, as human. So, the approach is always very respectful. It's deep. There's a lot to be learned, a lot of time sitting and listening and learning. Um, the stories were out there. It was about listening to those stories, getting to know who those characters and people were back in the day, uh, both, you know, white fellas and black fellas from back then. And um, everything in High Crown is, is really inspired by true events and true characters and true stories. There's nothing in there that didn't actually happen. I mean, it's a fiction, but so is history. And uh, that's our take on it. Everyone's grappling with, the, with our history in a way we did as well. Um, you know, we sat down for years and years and years just talking about how we could kind of turn this 
story into something that would be entertaining, that would be exciting, that people um, kind of wouldn't be put off by, but but be immersed in and want to participate in it and actually kind of go for the ride. So it was about how we best structure this. Uh, there was a lot of permissions needed to film on country, to actually speak to all of the appropriate family members uh, who were involved in certain massacres and certain things that would be very close to the heart, even though, as I say, we did fictionalise, you know, for example, the Gangar massacre that took place in Arnhem Land. There was a little boy who was breathing through the lily and survived and that old man passed away not that long ago. So it's very close to the heart for a lot of people. So it was about taking the time and um, steady as she goes and let's get this right. So we wrote and we rewrote and we rewrote and we sang and we danced and we listened for years and Widiana was by my side every step of the way and every time we went to country or we visited families we would sing certain song cycles and introduce concepts and ideas behind the storytelling and that was also connecting into family and into country so it was quite an exhaustive and thorough process in many ways mm-hmm. um, i think the yeah. uh, the film achieves that amalgamation quite well mm-hmm. Stephen. as you'd say it's a human story and we see people both black and white Mm. caught up in this thing that's called colonisation and the class mm. of cultures. Um, one, of the, one of the things I particularly liked about it, though, was that you were able to frame the film between two pillars, one mm-hmm. being LAW law and the other one being LORE law, mm. and law being represented by Jack Thompson and law being represented by um, Widiana. Mm. Um, I understand that uh, that Jack had a number of health issues and had to um, receive the benefit of some of the healthcare settings up there. It was a sign of how dedicated he was to 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 the project. Do you want to tell us a little bit bit about what he went through to be to uh, participate in this? The big man, absolutely. I mean, how big Jack? Yeah, you know, lucky my to work with Big Jack. Yeah. So look, Jack and I have been mates for a long time. I met Jack on Younger Boy. He kindly came and did a. a bit on Younger Boy's head, only white fella and the Younger Boy, and we paid him a dollar. And uh, I've known Jack since then. Jack's been involved in this process with me all these years and stood by my side as well, helping me out. But, uh, yeah, we had to get the purple bus up there for Jack and his dialysis. Um, but this story is is very close to Jack's heart, the whole in- Indigenous situation, the whole human situation in this country. He's... Um, very committed to putting the story straight and was there every step of the way to, to help out and to sit and sit with the old men and women and listen and be a part of that process as well. So Jack was was on the journey um, wherever he could be at times and uh, was a, a massive supporter and, um, you know, very, very, very well connected, of course, and it was always lovely to sort of be able to beam Jack in in certain meetings, which is good because he does have the voice. He does, yeah. Um, I've, I've, um, he, I've heard he him read poetry. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah, no, he's a, a beautiful, beautiful man and he's a very passionate man. He's a deep thinker. He cares deeply about things and, you know, in some some respects, I think this is one of the the finest things Jack's done. He's quite brilliant in it. He just placed it perfectly. Speaking of our uh, beautiful, beautiful men, uh, Simon Baker. <laughs> God, <laughs> how, yeah. 
there you go. At least, uh, well, see the the segue. The segue was just there. It's I had smooth. to leap on it. <laughs> well, Tell us well, how well. Simon became Simon came um, uh, involved in the project. Gives a brilliant performance. One of the better performances I've ever seen from Indeed. from him. Um, obviously a great deal of commitment. How did he become involved in the project? Well, look, good good question. Back in the day when I was shooting Treaty and Jab and I also did a few other clips around the place and one of them was a clip called Read My Lips for uh, <laughs> Melissa back in the day, which went instantly to number one. But um, we had to find um, four incredibly good-looking good models to kind of intercut sexy images Um of with with Melissa's song and um, uh, we looked at a whole bunch of the hottest models in Sydney at the time and one of those was Simon and we picked Simon off a, a sheet and he got the part in this clip and that's how we met because I was a director of photography on that video and um, I hadn't seen and said from there Simon's career went to E Street he's kind of exploded and went to LA and eventually became the mentalist and I hadn't seen Simon for all those years so it was nearly 30 years and I was um, at the Garma Festival in uh, a few years ago now and I was just walking along and I heard Jono and I turned around and there was Simon um, just straight out of breath so he still got his beard he was pretty scruffed up and as soon as I turned around and saw Simon I just went to myself Travis um, because Simon had always been on my list, as you can as you can imagine, taking twenty years to make the film. There's a lot of people on my list, um, but Last Simon bender. was yeah no Simon was always there. <laughs> and um, during the time of the making of the film, he finished in America. He ended up in Australia. He ended up at the Garma Festival. I turned around and there he was. We spent two or three days catching up and just going fishing. And he'd just recently been adopted in. Um, into a, a clan and um, and then at the very end when we're saying goodbye, I said, if there's anything I can help you with with the film, it sounds amazing, let me know. And a couple of weeks later I rang him up, I went and visited him in Sydney. We sat down at Bronte Beach together and we said, let's do this. Um, and, uh, you know, again, Simon is incredibly deep. He's He's been immensely moved by his whole experience in that part of the world. And um, I think he has done an extraordinary job with um, the character of Travis. I think he's been amazing. He really, he really just allowed himself to be fully immersed in that world and to be affected by the people and the song and the country and, um, and, just placed himself beautifully in the story, and mm. and as a star, it's a, it's an additional responsibility for someone like Simon to be working with uh, two debut performers for the first time in, in a feature film. So his performance has got to be mindful of that as well, and I think that came across really strongly in that there was a generosity in his performance as well. Um, uh, you know, dealing with Esmeralda um, and um, uh, all the other performers as well I thought I thought he was there for them in a very sort of generous way that seemed to come off the screen and that was also impacted that also impacted um the way we perceived the character as well yeah no good one um a very good observation because it was very much the the off-screen on-screen reality of what was happening was what was happening because here was this uh white fella immersed in Arnhem Land uh for the first time here was a young uh, you know, 
fella, binning, binning man from, from Arnhem Land, never acted in his life working with one of the, you know, world's most famous kind of actors. And um, it was a two-way dreaming, really. It was like these two people were feeling each other out, were being very respectful of one another. It was almost like a, an off-screen father and son relationship, which is what it was on screen. So there was a truth there that we were playing and mm. and and doing. So, yeah, it was very, very, very special, very kind of sacred stuff. It was really good and, and um, very nurturing. Mm, that's okay. Mm. Um, that definitely is communicated on on screen. Mm. Um, for listeners, v- v- very very, they're both both very vulnerable to each other, you know. And that's the thing we all try and tap into as as artists is to sort of allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And that was everywhere for us because there was this uh, this commitment to truth telling and wanting to everyone going on their own kind of personal journeys with the story. It was beautiful. Oh, absolutely. And I think also vulnerability coming from these two male characters as well is something we don't often see on screen, and particularly when you have that father-son dynamic. We have been speaking with Stephen Maxwell-Johnson, who's the director of High Ground, which we'll be reviewing. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Oh, really it's an absolute, absolute pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you all. Daniel, lovely to here and see Good you to see again. you again, Stephen. I'll see you down at the White Heart sometime. Yeah. Please, you're, you're all very welcome. Come on down. <laughs> yeah, if you're in Melbourne, head to Stephen's Bar, White Heart. Um, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You are currently tuned into with Paul Anthony Nelson and special guest reviewer, Daniel James, and myself. Click forward. Here's the kid. That's the kid you pulled out of the creek. You're going to kill my uncle. I say that depends on you. If we're going to work together, you should learn to shoot. Just stay calm. Gently squeeze the trigger. When you've got the high ground, you control everything. High Ground tells the story of the aftermath of a brutal massacre of an Indigenous community. Returned from World War I, ex-sniper Travis, played by Simon Baker, is a policeman in the Northern Territory who participates in an operation that goes horribly wrong. Twelve years later, he's forced to track down Baywara, an Indigenous warrior who is attacking new settlers in the region. Travis enlists Jutgut, a mission-raised Indigenous man as his tracker and comes to realise that Gutchuk is the sole known survivor of an earlier massacre. Before long, the hunter becomes the hunted. Daniel, you hosted a Q&A for this film. Um, you're, you're pretty much best friends with Simon Baker now, aren't you? <laughs> uh, close, close personal friends, yes. Yeah. So I've been invited up to his shack in Byron oh, uh, to help him uh, whack some boards. Um, <laughs> But now I was uh, I was um, I was uh, is he just enough. living a Tim Winton novel right now? Is that what's happening? Seriously, Never when we time. when we did the the Q and A in the in the cinema at um, Alstonwick, he was actually had overalls on and he'd just come from um, 
waxing his surfboards. <laughs> uh, that's that's a fact. And there, there are several hundred people that can back me up on that. <laughs> but he gives he gives a brilliant performance in this film, and it's yeah. um, you know. Uh, we should say that um, if you're thinking of going along to see it, if you haven't seen it already, is that there are some very graphic scenes yeah. in it as well that might cause mob in particular, uh, you know, a degree of trauma because it is based around the events of of a, of a massacre and uh, the filmmakers didn't shy away from exploring that and uh, showing it in, um, in, in a graphic way. But from there, we, we get a really strong resonating story that uh, walks between two worlds and covers a whole bunch of issues in between. Mm, absolutely. I was shocked by the violence in this, and I feel like I watch a lot of violent cinema, but um, I think the fact that that anchoring to a very real past and a very much unresolved grief it just adds to it. and the way in which it's shot, like those really quick edits. There's this, there's this genuine shock in that editing, and it's mm. so jarring. I, um, it's kind of amazing, really, with how they've decided to capture it because it could quite easily turn into, you know, when violence is presented on screen and it just becomes this sort of blur, and it, it sometimes can become a bit desensitizing. This is almost the opposite with how it's been captured, where it just keeps this sharpness to it in those scenes and it's through the edits, it's through those close-ups and there's no pre-warning to what happens and what unfolds. Um, it's really quite a shocking opening scene for sure. And I think you could almost say that one of the main characters in, in the film is the landscape itself mm. and I think the way they've tried to highlight that and I think Stephen's spoken about this is through the through the soundscape. So there's actually no soundtrack to the film, there's no music. There's just the, um, the the sound of the bush, and they made a very strong point, especially in in the cinema, of making sure that that came through as an immersive experience, and that the the sound of ants crawling over leaves, of uh, people walking mm-hmm. through grass, um, of the birds and the wind and the breeze and the rain, came through very very strongly, and that that created an uh, an almost at times, and it's it's counterintuitive to say this, but it, it was so immersive that sometimes it felt almost a little bit claustrophobic because you could feel the menace and the the foreboding coming in around you at particular points during the story. So it was actually a very, very clever piece of filmmaking. Mm, I love that, um, that that phrase that Stephen used of an immersive northern instead of a, yes. a western as it keeps being called. It sounds like an inner city beer. but <laughs> Yeah, I think I got a, had a few too many uh, immersive northerns the other weekend. But, um, yeah, I, love, I think immersion is so such a fantastic phrase to use there, though, because immersion, you know, you've got this sense of, of being drowned by it almost, like the soundscape is this thing that covers, covers over you. Yeah, I definitely was very moved by that as well. Um, how did it, with the Q&A, can I just ask, what was kind of the responses in the audience? Because that would have been at the premiere, is that right? It was a couple of days after the Melbourne. Mm. No, it was the day after the Melbourne premiere, which was at um, Pentridge. One of the things, and I was forewarned about this sort of, high, you know, hosting a Q and A, is that from the audience, the audience was, uh, again, this sounds really counterintuitive, but was up for a laugh, was up for a release, yeah. because the story was itself so arduous and and so deep and so, I guess, gripping that. People in the audience were were looking for a, a, a release after after that, and so they were really open to 
um, you know, the serious nuanced discussion, but also up for being a little bit flippant about some of the challenges that they discovered making the movie. Mm. Um, but the, 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 the credits the the credits themselves go for like eight minutes or something because mm. there was so much consultation with the local mob up there and so many people to thank over such a long period that um, it's actually quite an event to actually sit through the the, the credits themselves but um the, no one left everyone stayed and we were keen to hear from um, Maggie Mills which was one of the producers and uh, Stephen himself and uh, we managed to get um, Simon to um, you know walk away from his his Byron lifestyle, <laughs> and uh, join us on the on the big screen. So I think people um, were really captivated by the film and really interested in trying to find out more about it. Yeah, bad. How about you, Paul? Yeah i i did I did like it. i I thought the the cast were terrific across the board. Um, we've obviously mentioned um, Simon and Jack and. Um, and uh, Witiana and Jacob Jr. Nangul, but I, I actually thought, and, and Esmeralda as well, um, I thought that Sean uh, Munungur as Baywara was really oh, charismatic. Yeah. I thought he was really yeah. striking. He had great yeah. natural screen presence. Um, and uh, and I liked, uh, liked his character is awful, but Kellen Mulvey was also oh, yeah. terrific <laughs> so, as yeah, well. Yeah, I grew up watching Heartbreak High, so I was like, is that Jurassic? <laughs> yeah, it's drastic. I just yeah. love the. I love this whole like him and Simon Baker almost had this high school style relationship. You know how the, there's always mm. that kid in high school groups, the the bully kid is always thrown you under the bus. It's always like, nah, miss, he did it. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. it's because like, oh, this is your problem, isn't it? You you created this, you messed this up. It's just constantly and, yeah. throwing it back at Sean at, at Simon Baker. And also that thing of like the friends they made during the war. It's kind of similar to high school where you're just friends with the people because they're in your classroom, not necessarily out yeah. of shared interests. Yeah, proximity um, is all it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I, 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 so I really dug the casting. I thought the characterizations of um, characters, both black and white, were, were really, it were quite layered and complex, um, a lot more than certain other recent efforts to address our nation's fucked up racial history on screen, which yeah. will go nameless here. But, um, but yeah, I thought it was really, there was a real attention uh, to character there that made mm. it feel lived in and, and made it feel um, um, really, really interesting. I, I did feel it did follow a bit of an unyieldingly straight line from start to end it did like at times and how much of this is the western form and how much of this is the horrifying universality of of colonialism but there was a lot i didn't find a lot of surprises in this film i was never like i was never really surprised at any moment i just sort of felt it was a very for me uh, i felt it was a very a to b to c story it was an engaging one and and one that i uh did enjoy um well i say enjoy enjoy slash was horrified by but yeah it's it's um sort of felt that I, I thought that the the decision to go without a score was interesting particularly because mm-hmm. scores are one of the most iconic things about the western form and mm. so having one without one was a bit kind of it, it was a bit off-putting for a while there and yeah. I, I like what you say about the immersion thing I almost wish the visuals had raised to the soundscape like I almost oh, wanted really? like a Terrence Malick style visual dreamy immersive visual look yeah. and give yeah. and give that landscape a real like kind of other life yeah that's um, interesting 
you say that because I actually had the opposite where I actually feel like both met me at that point and I thought, um, and I, I forgot to ask Stephen about like um, the cinematography work and I've forgotten the DOP's name right off the top of my head, but it's exceptional. I think it's Andrew. Um, it's exceptional. Like I thought that I'm pretty sure it was drone, some drone footage. Lots of drone seemed, work. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, I thought it added this beautiful fluidity and movement to it that was then captured as well with the warriors' bodies and like the way in which, you know, all the lessons that were being taught through, you know, being passed down, I actually thought it was really beautiful, like beautifully kinetic film. And I thought that was communicated through not only the cinematography, but in those edits that I was talking about before and the the length of the shot duration. I really loved those super extreme close-ups. I'm always a fan of that in film. And I just thought that that to me added to that sense that like you were saying, Daniel, of claustrophobia. We have the, we have the sonic claustrophobia, but then you have these super um, extreme close-ups. So I actually kind of disagree with you, Paul, just in terms of the visuals. I thought the visuals were really there. Um, and, yeah, that sense of it being a character, which of course is like a common trope of the Western. But I do feel, as, I get what you mean about the narrative. I, I think the narrative maybe follows a similar sort of pacing, but I think that the rest of the formal body of this film brings in such, uh, kind of seems to question that. And there's these beautiful moments where you've got the photographer. Do you remember those bits where you've got the recrea- recreation of a the historical film. photograph? And I yeah. thought that was beautiful because not only is it a comment, of course, on the way in which history can be recorded, manipulated, all of those things, but it stops the film. Like the idea of a, of a stillness in this film is a formal disruption. So I actually, I really loved the formal play, perhaps more than the plot actually. And I think that the, the formal space that it brings you into through that soundscape and visual world um, really definitely affected me, yeah. So um, Andrew Thomas is the um, cinephotographer. Cine- yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think there's definitely that, that linear sort of straight line you know, mm. story that you get in Westerns. And I think it's amplified through this story because we know how colonisation is going to end up for these for these people and mm. how it's still going for so many other people. So that, that sense of, okay, well, we, we, we know what's going to happen here, you know, mm. we, we, we really do. It's just a matter of whether it happens to our protagonists or not mm. and whether yeah. they can survive in this world as either, uh, you know, in their traditional life or through through mission life. And um, th- that's that's the tension. And I think that's the thing that keeps the, the, the audience interested throughout the, mm. throughout the story. Yeah. I, I, will, yeah. I will say too, there's some striking um, design choices at times. Uh, one of them is having um, at one point uh, uh, Gutjuk uh, learns how to use a gun mm-hmm. and he's walking around otherwise looking traditional but with a bandolier of bullets around him. And I found that such an yeah, intriguing, yeah, yeah. confronting mm. image. Mm. I, 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 yeah, I particularly like that choice. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. There's um, a lot, yeah. There's a lot of shades of grey within this film, which I mm. think is the only way that you can approach um, a project as um, complex as this. Um, High Ground, directed by Stephen Maxwell Johnson, is currently screening at all independent and major cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. 
You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford, and we're joined in the studio by the host of the mission and on your airwaves every Tuesday night, Daniel James. Hello. Uh, hi, Daniel. <laughs> we spoke with Stephen Maxwell Johnson, the director of High Ground, which we reviewed. It's time for our second feature film of the night. You can't tell the story of Aboriginal Australia without featuring Bangara. The thing we loved the most was our culture and was feeding that through a contemporary expression. It was time to have a black company in Australia. Firestarter marks Bangara Dance Theatre's 30th anniversary. It's a documentary taking us through Bangara's birth and spectacular growth and tells the story of three young Aboriginal boys, Stephen, David and Russell Page, who turn a newly born dance group into a First Nations cultural powerhouse. Um, Paul, we had the pleasure of interviewing Stephen Page late last year. Um, What did you think of this documentary on his legacy as a cultural activist? It's rare that a film documentary otherwise truly blindsides me. Mm. Um, Generally, I I feel like I kind of know what I'm going to get into and know to which sort of this this completely floored me. I had mm. no idea um, this would affect me as much as it did. Um, Wayne Blair and Nell Minchin's thorough, it's uh, increasingly intimate um, account of the history of, of this company and the three brothers that drove it through 30 years of cultural expression, growth and redefinition. It's it's as it's as stirring, inspiring, and emotional as any film I've seen in a long while. Like to a certain extent, it does have a conventional structure. It is a talking heads doc, but there's such grace with the way it's been put together and the way they address the the brothers' relationship mm. in, in parallel to the evolution of the company is is really intelligent and yeah. and and it's also it's a um, it's perfectly showcases not only how important Bangara's work is is and has been, but also the energy, grace, skill, and visual style of the work. Mm, yeah. um, it's an incredible, incredible group of ta- talented artisans swirling around these three charismatic, gifted, lovable, and oh. troubled siblings with vision they, and yeah. incredible heart. Oh, aren't they amazing, those men? I mean, I was so taken, particularly that footage of Russell dancing is one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen captured with. He was seriously one of the best dancers in the world when when he was at his peak. Easily, yeah. Incredible. And and that sort of footage, the the dance footage they show of him as they sort of tell where his story kind of ends up Mm. is so perfect. Like it's such a beautiful elegy. I've got to say there's a lot of talk, there's, you know, the expression going around black excellence. You know, we need to see more, you know, kind of examples of black excellence in culture. This is it. Like this is, this typifies black excellence. Mm, it is but it, yeah. a beautiful but film. It also talks about, and I think that's what makes this film, and like the documentary is, you know, it does follow a really standard format and, and like you said, Paul, like talking heads, but it's about black excellence, but it's also about the weight of that responsibility yeah. and the the emotional toll that that takes in revisiting that past, in in continuing to do that work, um, and having to dig to that part of yourself yeah. to express and what that does yeah. to you. Yeah, I found it a very difficult film to watch. It was beautiful to have that insight into this family and these men. Um, Daniel, how did you find it? Well, I only got a chance to see it this afternoon, so it's still very much mm. digesting with me. And, and yeah. it's, um, I found it 
at times very dreamlike. And I think the the interspersion of the 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 segments of the beautiful dancing and the beautiful performances with the with the with the story and the narration made it sort of like a dreamtime story in. In, in, a, in a way. Um, one of the things that really strongly resonated with me is the way it tied itself together with what was happening politically and culturally mm-hmm. at the time as well. And that sort of, you know, pressure cooker of an environment, especially during uh, Mabo, the Mabo discussion mm-hmm. and uh, the Redfern speech and the lead up to the Sydney Olympics, really created this pressure cooking environment, which something like, which, which, you know, resulted in something like Bangara actually bursting out and actually coming onto the scene through these, um, you know, three beautiful men. And um, I think that for me, as someone who lived through that as a, as a, as a young man, it was um, something that really grounded the, the whole documentary for, for me in, in, in the real world. Um, um, and it's actually very a very strange comparison, but it actually reminded me at times of that uh, Bee Gees documentary, How to Mend a Broken Heart, just because of the three brothers mm. um, starting off together, finding the world together, these brothers being far more worldly and far more politically aware than than the Gibb brothers. But <laughs> it was just um, it was just because it was something I saw re- recently and I thought, okay, well, you know, it's this is what it's like to to create something out of out of nothing from mm-hmm. a, a troubled background and we and we get that in this. Yeah. And I think it is worth mentioning that there is um, talk of suicide and depression in this film, uh, Firestarter, um, and I'd like to remind listeners who may be affected um, by tonight's discussion or any of the issues that come up in the documentary that there's always support available. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14, and the service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can also chat online with the Lifeline support service every day from 7 p.m. until midnight. We also have Beyond Blue, one 222 24636. This service is available 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And you can also, again, chat online with the support service every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. I feel like there's so much to discuss in Firestarter, and unfortunately, we do not have time to unpack it. I highly recommend everyone see this film. Actually, both films that we've talked about tonight, please do check them out. Firestarter, the story of Bangara, is now screening at all independent and major cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple. Ah. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford, plus our special guest reviewer, Daniel James. On tonight's show, we reviewed High Ground and spoke with director Stephen Maxwell Johnson. We also reviewed Firestarter, the story of Bangara, directed by Nell Minchin and Wayne Blair. Both films are currently screening at all major and independent cinemas in Australia. And if you'd like to hear some more from our special guest reviewer, Daniel James, tune in every Tuesday night for The Mission. And a special shout-out to the Melbourne Women in Film Festival, which is happening right now. Um, I had the pleasure of facilitating a panel discussion yesterday and there's plenty more events and screenings happening over the next few days, so make sure you check it out. Head to um, mwff.org.au for more information. And if you get a ticket, I'll see you at the closing night screening of Brazen Hussies this Wednesday. Next week, we're going to have another one of our Spotlight Specials. Details to be announced uh, in the socials uh, very soon. A big thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling tonight's show and providing producing assistance. 
Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 